0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello there and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer on air, online or via your ABC Listen app. Thanks for tuning in. Now, later on in the show...
0: The captain of a freighter has told how a group of more than 400 Afghan boat people threatened to jump into the sea unless they were taken to Australia. The asylum seekers were picked up late yesterday and the captain had been planning to take them back to Indonesia. But Captain Anrinan says five men came up to the bridge and demanded that they be taken to Christmas Island. He recalls the conversation.
2: We have left everything behind. The situation is very bad. We do not want to go to Singapore or Indonesia. We have nothing to lose. You felt a little under threat? Oh, yes, ma'am. There's 434 of them.
1: How many of you?
2: 27.
1: Now, the Tampa Asylum Seeker standoff 20 years ago was one of the most controversial Australian political episodes in living memory. We'll reflect on refugees and border protection with Philip Ruddick, the then Immigration Minister. Stay with us for that but first a follow-up to our show with john Mearsheimer last week now in the seven years of presenting this program on radio national i've not received such enthusiastically positive feedback from listeners as i did to last week's episode when professor Mearsheimer defended the u.s withdrawal from afghanistan But although many of you were persuaded by Mearsheimer's argument, you still wondered whether the Biden administration's evacuation plans could have been handled a lot better. After all, the US withdrawal, well, it's been widely seen as a humiliation, an embarrassment, a betrayal and a disaster. So was there a way to avoid a messy exit from Afghanistan? It's a good question, which I put to John Mearsheimer this week.
0: Tom, my view is that there was no way to avoid a messy exit. It didn't matter whether Donald Trump was in charge or Dwight Eisenhower uh, had come back from the dead and been put in charge. It just wouldn't have mattered. It would have been messy under any circumstances. And let me explain why. The key starting point is to recognize that we're talking about moving huge numbers of people out of Afghanistan very quickly. Uh, We moved, as it is, uh, 122,000 people in 15 days, and there are estimates that there were another 600,000 Afghanis uh, who wanted to get out and most of them had worked with us in one capacity or another. So we're talking about huge numbers. Now, whenever you move huge numbers quickly, you have to do two things. One is extensive planning, and it has to be extensive on-the-ground planning. And number two, at the first sign that there's real trouble, at the first sign that the Afghan army is collapsing, you have to head for the exits. Those are two necessary conditions, so the argument goes, to make this work. But the problem is, You cannot do either one of those things. You can't do extensive planning on the ground. And number two, you can't instantaneously move for the exits once you see trouble. And the reason for that is that the Afghan army is very weak. And if anything, what you need to do is buck it up to strengthen it. You have to show that you're going to stay there in part and be there for them in part. However, if you do extensive planning, the Afghan army is going to figure out very quickly, you're about to leave, and therefore, it's going to melt away. Or if the first time the Afghan army gets into trouble, you start heading for the exits, they're going to collapse. Again, this is a weak army to start with. So the problem that the Americans face is that they're in a damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't situation. If they plan extensively and they move at the first notice that the Afghan army is in trouble, it's going to crumble and we'll be in the situation that we were in over the past few weeks when we didn't plan extensively and we stayed as long as we could to help buck up the Afghani army. So there's just no way you can avoid a messy exit. Let me say one more thing about this. I've spent a good chunk of my life studying war. War, as Clausewitz makes clear, is a messy business. It's a messy business from start to finish. It's because war is filled with uncertainty. You run into concepts like friction, the fog of war what Donald Rumsfeld called unknown unknowns. Things go wrong all the time. All of this is to say wars are messy from start to finish. And here we're talking about the finish. And I think there are no wars in modern history that I know of that didn't end up in a messy way. So this is not an anomaly. The ending of conflicts is invariably bloody and messy. And this again is no exception.
1: That was John Mearsheimer from the University of Chicago. And to hear last week's episode, just go to our homepage, abc.net.au/rn, and follow the prompts to Between the Lines.
0: This is Between the Lines
1: with Tom Switzer. Well, in the wake of the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan many people have voiced concern that the group will once again harbor terrorists just as it did in the lead up to september 11 2001. now paul wolfowitz was the u.s deputy defense secretary who helped initiate the invasions of both afghanistan and iraq in 2003. this is what he told this program recently about the taliban's links with jihadist groups bent on attacking western nations
0: They've spent 20 years being attacked by us. Are they gonna be very happy to just leave us alone? Or to make sure that other people leave us alone? I think, unfortunately, I hate to have to say this, but I think it's inevitable. And it's one of the things that worries me so much about what's happening now. It's a threat to American security. It's not just some there's too much talk about Afghans, not that they aren't important, they're very important, but this is about The United States, it's about Americans. It's about keeping my country safe and your country
1: safe. Paul Wolfowitz on between the lines. Yet one of the Taliban's first acts since capturing Kabul was to execute the Islamic State leader who'd been in prison. And the Taliban has strongly condemned the Islamic State's recent suicide bombing at Kabul airport that killed about 170 civilians and 13 US servicemen and women. So to discuss these issues, let's welcome back to the program, Lydia Khalil. She's a research fellow at the Lowy Institute who specializes in Middle Eastern politics and security and international terrorism. Lydia, welcome back to the program.
3: Thank you, Tom. Good to be with you.
1: Now, two years ago, many people just assumed that the Islamic State had been defeated, at least in Iraq and Syria. Yet this Islamic State Khorasan, it's the ISIS-K, that's claimed responsibility for the recent terror attacks at Kabul. Where do they come from?
3: Well, Islamic State Khorasan, um, as you mentioned, is an affiliate of the Islamic State, that terrorist insurgent organization that originally came out of Iraq and Syria. And it's a recognized affiliate of that Islamic State's core leadership. It was founded around 2008. And fifteen by, and it's made up of mostly former uh, Pakistani Taliban uh, fighters, but also includes disaffected Afghan Taliban uh, members. Members from the former members of the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan. And it's also a group that's incorporated other militants from other small groups in that area. So Islamic State Khorasan has been active in Afghanistan for many years now. Uh, It quickly established itself in Afghanistan around that time in 2015, and even managed to gain control of some territory a while back. But it received a hammering by US and Afghan forces in the years since then, and was severely diminished. But it remained, uh, remained there, and it remained active. And it's carried out a number of attacks against Afghan civilians over the years, against minority groups in Afghanistan, journalists. They were responsible for an attack against Kabul University earlier this year. They even attacked a maternity ward. Um, Also, uh, in recent times, really terrible terrorist attacks that they've been responsible for, um, in addition to the most recent one in Kabul airport. And if you take a look at the most recent estimate by the UN monitoring group that that monitors jihadist activity. They say that they have about a couple of thousand fighters in their ranks. And um, both the UN Monitoring Group report and the US Military Inspector General report have recorded an uptick of attacks by the Islamic State in Khorasan in the few months in anticipation of the US withdrawal.
1: Okay. Now, let's just make it clear here. The Taliban, of course, they harbored al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden in the lead up to the 9-11 terror attacks. But the Taliban strongly opposes these Islamic State jihadists. Why?
3: That's right. So, what you're seeing is um, a rivalry playing out between various jihadist forces um, in the Afghanistan theater. So, Islamic State Khorasan is actually a serious rival to the Taliban. You know, we talk about how the Islamic State poses a threat to the West or the US, but right now, first and foremost, they're a threat to civilians in Afghanistan and to the Taliban. Um, Jihadist militancy is very complicated in Afghanistan and in that part of the world. There's a very complicated history of militancy and jihadism. There's a lot of splinter groups and rivalries both within and among various jihadist organizations. And with the U.S. withdrawal and the constitutional Afghan government essentially dissolved, and now the Taliban is in the process of consolidating its control, there still remains opposition to the Taliban from these rival jihadist forces like Islamic State Khorasan. And so what we're seeing now is kind of a new theater of jihadist competition. The end goals of the Islamic State and the end goals of the Taliban are different. The Islamic State Khorasan's goal in Afghanistan is to ultimately make that territory of Afghanistan a branch of of the global Islamic caliphate. In order to do that, they have to aim to destabilize the Taliban takeover. The Taliban's goals are different. They have the goal of politically control, controlling and consolidating Afghanistan and don't have that broader goal of becoming part of a global caliphate.
1: This brings us to the withdrawal because it's been widely seen as humiliating and, uh, and unnecessary. But it sounds like what we're seeing right now in Afghanistan is essentially an ISIS-K versus Taliban civil war. Does that demonstrate the wisdom for the US departure from Afghanistan?
3: Well, I challenge you a little bit on that premise of a of a of a civil war between the Taliban and Islamic State, only Uh because the Islamic State is not a strong enough force to present that type of challenge. I might characterize it a little bit differently and say that they will play a spoiler role in what's happening in Afghanistan. And so. But your broader point about around whether it was the right strategic decision for the U.S. to withdraw. You know, obviously, fews differ on that. I happen to agree that it was the correct strategic decision for the United States to withdraw. It was a very long war. We were not winning that war. But I did take issue in the manner in which the withdrawal occurred because it was also based on an agreement negotiated with the Taliban under the previous administration, the Trump administration. And that agreement extracted virtually no concessions from the Taliban. It didn't extract guarantees for women or minorities well, well, in Afghanistan. Well, to be fair,
1: they, they did get a concession in the sense that the Taliban agreed that they would not shoot American troops during that 18th month period leading up to the withdrawal. That's a big concession.
3: That's true. That was the tactical, uh, that was the tactical point. But if you wanted to have a 20 year commitment bear fruit. You needed to include the constitutional Afghan government in those negotiations, which did not happen. And there were no other further concessions except for the Taliban. Truly retaining their commitment not to attack troops as they withdrew, but why on earth would they? They would practically rolling out the red carpet for these uh, troops to withdraw because that means they could get what they want. But if we're talking about the long-term stability and having that 20-year investment of the United States and coalition partners really establish itself, then you know that initial negotiation with the Taliban had left a lot to be desired, and also the the you know the Biden administration faced a difficult choice. They could either stick to that timetable or try to renegotiate. And there were risks in either way. To try to renegotiate this this agreement carried significant risks. So I'm not suggesting that that, that might have been the way to go. But there certainly could have been much better execution of the withdrawal, evacuation, and better planning.
1: My guest is Lydia Khalil, and she's a research fellow at the Lowy Institute. Now, finally, Lydia, next week marks the 20th anniversary of the 9 11 attacks, and this week marks the 70th anniversary of the ANZUS Alliance. And this has been covered in detail in other parts of Radio National Commentary. You've just edited a Lowy Institute interactive on September 11. On reflection, do you think the then Australian government of Prime Minister John Howard? Was it right to give such strong support to Washington in the so-called war on terror, given that the results have been far from positive? Lydia?
3: Well, it's a good question, Tom, especially, you know, as you mentioned, we're hitting that 20-year anniversary, and there's a lot of retrospectives and reflections, not only on the attacks themselves, but the global war on terror that, that, you know, that those attacks wrought, right? So in our future, we examine the big implications of those attacks. We asked, you know, did it define our world? How did those initial decisions that governments made in the United States and in Australia and allied partners uh, really impact, you know, the execution of the global war on terror and what it all means? I think people forget, especially those who are very young, you know, because this is a 20 year conflict, a multifaceted conflict, that there was a very visceral reaction to those attacks in the immediate aftermath. People sometimes forget the sense of immediacy and the implication of, you know, arguably the world's unique, you know, superpower, the only power at that time getting attacked uh, with such surprise and ferocity from a non-state actor. And when we look back at the many failures of the global war on, ta- on terror or the failures that have occurred in Afghanistan or, you know, ambitions that were not achieved, at the same time, people may forget that this was, you know, there was a justified causes belly for this attack um, and that it was largely supported by the international community and that it was important for allied governments to rally together in terms of responding to it in its initial instance. Now, where that begins to falter perhaps is when we got some mission creep. The mission in Afghanistan and in counterterrorism started to extend from merely going after terrorist organizations and combating a global jihadist movement like al-Qaeda to broader things like nation building in other countries, like going to the Iraq war, executing that conflict. And so I think it's the mission creep where there was an issue rather than the initial decision of allied governments to come together to
1: combat al-Qaeda. Lydia, always great to have you on Radio National.
3: Thanks for having me, Tom. Good to talk to you.
1: Lydia Khalil is research fellow at the Lowy Institute and will put a link to her 9/11 20th anniversary interactive on our homepage.
0: On RN, this is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer.
1: Well, 2 decades ago, a Norwegian freighter called the MV Tampa entered our waters. It was packed with more than 400 boat people. On August 26, 2001, the ship's captain had turned away from Indonesia and towards Christmas Island. Now, the immigration minister at the time was Philip Ruddick, and along with the then Prime Minister John Howard, they refused the boat people entry. The Howard government subsequently implemented tough policies, such as offshore processing. The episode it's known as the Tampa Asylum Seeker Standoff. So who better to reflect on these controversial events than Philip Ruddick himself? Now, as it happens, a new book has just been published about our guest. It's called Philip Ruddick and the Politics of Compassion. It's published by Connor Court and the author is Tom Frame. Hello, Philip. Great to be with you again.
2: Morning, Tom. Pleasure.
1: Now, let's, let's first put this crisis uh, in a broader context. Take us back to the late 90s and early 2000s. Well, the context
2: for me always is that uh, we should be there generous and supportive of refugees. Um, My starting position was that I worked very conscientiously with um, the Fraser government in helping to settle Vietnamese. I went to camps in Malaysia, Hong Kong to see Vietnamese. I helped with the Khmer. Um, I visited Pakistan and saw Afghans who had fled the Soviet Union when it was occupying Afghanistan. I'd been with refugees in Europe. Um, I'd been to places like Bosnia, Serbia. I put in place programs to bring Africans to Australia as refugees. I've always been there to help refugees, but at the end of the day, um, these matters need to be understood in terms of numbers. There are today something of the order of 90 million people displaced. We can't take them all. My view has always been we need to be there to help those who need help most. And you don't identify those who need help most by working with smugglers to identify those who've got money and are free enough to travel um, and who turn up. And, I mean, with Tampa, what we had was a situation. I mean, it wasn't an election issue. It wasn't organised as an election issue. The government had no role in relation to it. Um, What happened was that a group of people were rescued at sea. Um, They wanted to be taken on board um, but expected that having been taken on board, they wouldn't go to the nearest port um, en route, um, which was Maraq in Indonesia. Uh, They insisted and threatened the captain to take this vessel back to Australia, um, and uh, they identified Christmas Island, um, and he came, and uh, we were told, and I mean, I wasn't there in the morning, um, they were dealing with my officials at that time, my former chief of staff, uh, Andrew Metcalf, was the relevant immigration official, and uh, the captain was told, you should continue on the route that was planned. Um, and he said, well, it, it's too late. I can't do that. And I'm bringing them to you. Uh, and we said, well, um, you can't do that. Um, and all that followed was to ensure that the optics, uh, were not such that people could stand over us and say, we're coming, uh, whether you like it or not. And, uh, I'd have to say, um, for the captain, it was a very difficult issue. Um, but so far as we were concerned, um, it was absolutely essential to demonstrate that people could not come that way. And it's interesting that when the people were eventually taken and settled not in Australia, but in Nauru, um, for processing, that uh, they were processed by the UNHCR and Australian officials, and something of the order of uh, 50% of them were found not even to be refugees. It's not one of the figures that people often focus on, but a very substantial proportion of those on the vessel were not found to be refugees when their claims
1: were examined. Okay, now let's go back to this period, though. We're talking August, September 2001. Those aboard that Tampa, they were mostly from Afghanistan, presumably fleeing from the Taliban. It was a long and arduous journey through, I suppose it was through Malaysia and Indonesia and then across the Indian Ocean. Now, your critics at the time, and I'm not just referring to the David Mars and the Robert Manns and uh, the Julian Burnside's, I'm also referring to the Greg Sheridans and the Jared Hendersons. They said the decision to deny Tampa refugees on Christmas Island was a cruel attempt to demonise the helpless. And in any case, the policy would not work effectively. Philip Ruddick.
2: Well, let me say, um, the policy did work um, and... We were able to demonstrate that when you put in place appropriate measures to ensure that you were able to target those who need help most, um, that we were able to continue to have a generous refugee program, but not one dominated by those who simply said, um, we've got the money and we're free enough to travel and we're coming. I mean, that's that's really the test. Um, and... Uh, When you know that of this group of people, and I said it to you a moment ago, um, more than 50% were found not to be refugees, not examined by Australia, but by the international organisation, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, in relation to half of the caseload. In fact, Mm -hmm. one of the things that I thought was surprising was that there was a higher acceptance rate amongst those examined by Australian officials than those examined by the international body itself.
1: Let's go back to the 2001 election campaign.
2: We will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come.
1: That's John Howard on the 2001 election campaign, a couple of months or so after the Tampa Asylum Seeker standoff. Philip, uh, your critics would say that um, in response to your point there that the government was on the back foot in, in late August, early September. The Queensland state election earlier that year was a huge huge devastating loss for the Coalition, largely because a lot of the uh, Hansen voters peeled away from Uh, the the coalition the one nation voters and so the argument here is that the government to help its re-election campaign manipulated nativist fears for short-term political gain uh this this has all come at the price of blackening australia's good name there was a book at the time uh, or shortly afterwards i think it was in 2002 david marr marion wilkinson past guests on radio national the book was called a dark victory how would you respond to them
2: well i make it very clear um we had no idea that boats were going to turn up. This wasn't something planned by the government. Um, you know, the, the, these were unannounced arrivals, um, rescued at sea by Australia, um, and uh, they otherwise would have drowned if, um, you know, if they hadn't been taken on the Tampa and brought to us um, and then were properly accommodated and looked after um, and at great expense. I mean, I don't regard it as being a matter that the government manipulated. The government had to play on the wicket and the wicket was these people had arrived um, and the matter had to be managed.
1: What about their charge that, you know, the boat people, and this is a, this is a, an issue that, that continues to this day, that they're they're confined to unnecessarily difficult conditions and that we need more transparency on their treatment?
2: Well, let me make it very clear, I mean, We ensure that people are maintained in a situation in which their needs are properly addressed um, and uh, we provide accommodation, medical support. Um, All of this has happened over time and uh, I've seen circumstances in which people are placed in many other countries around the world and I would say uh, those who are accommodated by us certainly are detained so that we know where they are and if we need to be able to remove them, we're in a position to be able to do so, particularly when they're found not to be refugees. Um, I don't regard it as being at all inappropriate to uh, deal with them in that way. I mean, you can look at what happened more recently in relation to the 50,000 people who turned up when the management practices that the Howard government had used were taken away by uh, by Kevin Rudd. And those numbers of people became so large, that they weren't able to manage them other than to release them into the community. And uh, in many cases, um, you know, they've still not been found to be refugees. Um, they're not people to whom we have an obligation, um, but we have to manage it. I don't think that's appropriate.
1: Philip Ruddick was Immigration Minister and Attorney General in the Howard government. He was a federal Liberal MP from 1973 to 2016. That must qualify as one of the longest tenures in federal parliament in history. Now, if you were in America or Britain at, at age what, yeah, 77, you could still be serving in the Congress or the Commons.
2: Well, I could be President of the United States. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: That's right. Well, Joe Biden 78. Here's a question. Do you think we discriminate against the elderly in this country?
2: Well, I do, um, and I think that in terms of public life, what we did to the judiciary, and uh, the person who did it was um, a dear friend of mine, a former Attorney-General, Bob Ellicott. And if you ask Bob Ellicott today in his 90s whether he is of the view that he did the correct thing by requiring judges to retire at 70, he would say, no, I made a mistake. And now you've got people who are extraordinarily competent, judges who've been... Chief Justice of Australia, who are sitting on other courts around the world but unable to sit on the highest court in Australia. Yeah.
1: Do you miss politics, Philip? Um,
2: I still watch and offer advice and counsel as I can. You don't hear a great deal of it.
1: You're Mayor of Hornsby, aren't you? In your own I'm Mayor of, of Hornsby around.
2: and uh, I'm uh, President of the Liberal Party in New South Wales and, uh, oh. uh, and obviously um, I take the view that uh, service of the Australian community is a... A good thing to offer.
1: Philip, it's been a pleasure to have you back on Radio National.
2: Pleasure. Thank
1: you. Philip Ruddock was the second longest serving member of Federal Parliament in our nation's history from 1973 to 2016, including 12 years as either Immigration Minister or Attorney General in the Howard Government. The new book is called Philip Ruddock and the Politics of Compassion. It's published by Connor Court and the author is Tom Frame. Well, that's it for the show and remember to listen to Between the Lines every week. Just go to ABC Listen app where you can download us for free or wherever you get your shows online. I'm Tom Switzer and we hope you can tune in again next week.